My name's Corbin. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Corbin. Please don't remember me as the speaker who dated a lesbian. <laughs> um, my home group uh, is the Hillcrest Group in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, we meet on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock. Uh, so if you're ever in the Springfield, Missouri area, please stop by. We'll be happy to see you. Uh, my sobriety date is October 12th of 2008. And uh, Illinois AA has a special part in my heart. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'd like to thank the committee uh, and Donnie and Bruce who came to Branson last year and were able to ask me to come up here, and Nina, who's been an awesome host so far up to this point. <laughs> Uh, so it's been great. It's been a great weekend. Uh, and I'm nervous. I'm more nervous than usual just because I really do care a lot about Illinois AA. Uh, so much that I actually had a nightmare last night about speaking. Um, and I woke up thinking that my friend Danny was speaking opposed to me. And I was like, man, we're never going to be able to come back to Illinois AA. And, uh, so I'm glad that, you know, when I woke up, I realized my name was still on the flyer. Um, but, but in reality, I did. Uh, I had a nightmare that I got stuck in a drunk log and, uh, that I finished 30 minutes early and then remembered magically that I didn't talk about sobriety. <laughs> and, uh, and it almost made me think, man, I just can't talk about any of that stuff, anything that got me here. Um, but I think that that's really important. Uh, I don't think uh, 45 minutes about being drunk would be good, but I definitely think identification is important. Because um, I think it's the tears of identification that help us slip into the room. And I say that because whenever I talk to a newcomer, when somebody talked to me, it wasn't necessarily talking about steps uh, or the program itself you know, that made me relate. It's when I talked to him how I felt inside or what my brain did or how I thought, how I felt on a daily basis. And there's not many people that I haven't seen a tear or two start coming down their face, you know, as soon as they identify. Um, and to me, that's one of the most beautiful things, you know, to see that I've been able to help somebody relate like somebody did for me. Um, and that's a beautiful thing about this deal. You know, the only reason I'm here is because no matter where I go, everybody I talk to is exactly like me. I mean, you're my people. I feel safe here no matter where I am. Um, and Illinois especially, and I'll definitely get to that. But thank you for having me. Uh, you have a beautiful conference. Uh, but I am here to tell you uh, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, um, as truthful as I can make it. Um, and to the best of my recollection, uh, I, my, my whole family is actually from central Illinois. Um, they're all born and raised around the Auburn, Chatham, Springfield, Illinois. Um, so uh, Illinois has definitely been a big part of my life. I uh, was born outside Chicago in Naperville and then moved to Auburn, Illinois and to Quincy. Uh, my dad had gotten a job as a pharmaceutical rep for Bayer, uh, and so we moved around quite a bit before we got to Missouri when I was about five. Um, but my grandparents, of course, lived in, uh, in Auburn, uh, and I was very close with them. Uh, my grandma was a huge part of my life. Uh, she thought I was a miracle baby. She had breast cancer when I was born, uh, and she didn't think she was going to make it. So when she made it, she kind of decided that I was the reason, and so she just spoiled me uh, my entire life. Um, so that was a huge part. I got very close with my grandparents here in Illinois. Um, but when we moved to Missouri, I was about five years old. Um, the earliest memory I really have uh, of anything really related to, to being an alcoholic it was the same thing that everybody talks about, um, you know, the feeling of inadequacy, the feeling of not fitting in, of something just not being right. Um, I just kind of felt like that there was something missing or something broken. You know, I knew I had the parts, but I just, they didn't work. Um, whether it was, you know, being in kindergarten, you know, first grade, second grade, high school, it was all the same. You know, all it was was a desperate attempt uh, to quiet my head. You know, my entire life, that was my story, was just trying to shut my brain off so that I might be able to smile and enjoy myself. Um, and I remember the first time that I learned how to mask that um, was actually in kindergarten, because I remember I was on the, on the playground and there was a kid who was picking on me. Um, and I'd said probably the first witty thing of my entire life, and, uh, and he didn't like it very much, and he punched me right in the stomach. And I remember curling over, looking up, and the kid who was embarrassed, you know, just looked eight feet tall. You know, I just, I was like, wow, you know, I look stupid now. He looks awesome. So, I mean, this must be what I need to do, uh, you know, if I want to feel better about myself. And I filed that away to be used many times later. Um, and as I grew up, you know, I didn't really get violent until I got a little older, but there's always had to be something. Uh, I, was the, I was the class clown. I was the acting out. I caused problems at home because um, it's that ego, you know, I want everyone to notice me but leave me alone at the same time. So I never was satisfied with it because sure you noticed me but the negative consequences kind of made it un not worth it. 
Um, so it was just a struggle. No matter what I did, you know, I was always unhappy, and I thought this is how life was. Um, growing up, the only real difficulty I had, um, I had a very loving family, you know, never wanted for anything. None of them are alcoholics. I'm the first black sheep in the family. Um, uh, but my mom, me and my mom have a lot of similar characteristics. Um, if I if I got anything from my family, you know, me and my mom are I- identical twins just about. Um, you know, and she was very verbally abusive growing up, you know, towards me, my dad, my little brother. You know, so when I'm out in the real world, um, you know, I've got this feeling of inadequacy, this feeling of standing out. And then at home, you know, it was almost worse because I didn't really feel like I had a safe place. Um, even at home, it was always wondering what mom was going to say or mom was going to do. You know, looking at my dad, wondering why he wasn't doing anything, looking at my brother, being concerned about how it was affecting him. Um, and, of course, this is before I started drinking because once I started drinking, those people didn't matter anymore. Um, but I remember growing up just watching that and wondering, you know, is this how it's supposed to be? Is this what's always going to happen? But, you know, we adapt. You know, that's what alcoholics do. Um, and so I go through school, um, grade school even, middle school, um, just acting out, whether it's locking teachers in closets, breaking stuff, you know, stealing things. Uh, I went to Catholic school, so luckily enough money was being paid that I never got kicked out. <laughs> Pretty sure that's the only reason I actually have an education. Um, but, yeah, we didn't get along very well. They didn't like me, and for good reason. Um, but when I got into high school, you know, at this point I got straight A's, um, good student. Um, I even won the D.A.R.E. essay contest about <laughs> drinking and using drugs. <laughs> got to read it in front of the entire school. Um, you know, and sports were a big part of my life, too. I should mention I was always an athlete ever since kindergarten. I played every sport that I could because um, that also made me feel better. You know, on a field, I got to get out all this aggression, and I could be violent to mask my fear, and people cheered. You know, most people I was violent towards, there was never anyone cheering me. And uh, so sports were kind of a, an awesome outlet for me to just get rid of some aggression. Um, but I get into high school, uh, just this ideal student, this ideal kid at 15, um, and I remember I had my first drink, you know. Uh, I was at a dance, and of course I was that stereotypical guy who sat at the table. I didn't want to dance. I didn't want to talk to you. Um, I felt out of place. I knew everybody could see what was going on in my head and that everybody was wondering why I wasn't the same. Um, and as all that's going over in my brain 100 miles an hour, I don't realize that somebody had spiked my drink. Uh, and one of the guys had brought in a bottle of rum and poured it in a bunch of people's Cokes. Uh, and I took a drink, not knowing what it was. I remember it burned, and I didn't understand why. But within minutes, that sense of ease and comfort slowly started trickling down my throat, and it got warm in my stomach, and I felt it go to my hands and my feet, and I stood up, and I started talking to people, and I started to dance, and the world all of a sudden just seemed like a better place. You know, the best way I can describe it is the Claritin commercials. You know, they start the commercial out fuzzy, you can't see very well, kind of get angry because it makes you feel like you have bad vision, and then boom. You know, in a matter of a second, you see all these colors you didn't notice before. You see all the details of the picture you didn't notice before. And that's what alcohol did for my life. You know, I saw the colors and the details that were never, you know, in front of me before until I got drunk. Um, and I didn't get drunk my first drink, but it definitely did what alcohol did for me. Um, and that ease and comfort, and I lived life, and I loved it. Um, and I didn't just start off right away just drinking, you know, all day, every day. But I definitely filed that information as well, going, here's another solution to my problem. Um, but I realized that school was important, you know. I, I'd seen people who weren't de- doing well, uh, you know, especially at home. I wanted to make sure that I could do well so I could get away because um, things just kind of progressed over time. But, again, I just adapted, so I just kept doing what I was doing. Um, and sports were a huge deal. You know, I had football. I was a huge soccer player, uh, goalkeeper, but my high school didn't have a soccer team. Uh, so we, uh, So I joined the football team. Uh, played my freshman year, loved it. You know, I got to be that stereotypical schoolboy jock on the football team that all the teachers knew and didn't mess with. Uh, and I loved it. It filled the hole that I needed for the time being. Uh, and then I hurt my back, and I couldn't play football anymore. Um, I had herniated a disc, and so I was a lineman, so I couldn't really get in a stance and stay down there. So it kind of took away the only sport that I had at the time because uh, soccer season was already done. And so I just started going to the parties because the only way that I could still get that sense of camaraderie and that sense of being uh, just as good as was if I was still around the football team. And that's what the football team did. They went to parties and they drank. Uh, so slowly, you know, I, de- I developed this, the craving for alcohol or really even more the craving of the effect uh, that it gave me because there wasn't a single party that I drank at with the football team where I didn't feel larger than life, you know, safer than if I was in a bank vault. You know, nobody could touch me. 
you know, as long as I was drinking, everything was perfectly fine. And I had a host of friends. Everybody loved me. They cared about me. Uh, all these were just apparent, you know, when I was drinking. So I did that for a while. Grades are starting to slip. Things are kind of going down. And I'm a firm believer that nothing made me an alcoholic besides the fact that I'm bodily and mentally different than my fellows. But there were a lot of excuses I could find to drink. You know, absolutely, um, the things I ran into and went through fueled drinking, but none of them made me an alcoholic. Uh, and I have a good reminder of that because a lot of people I work with, I don't hide it. You know, I let them know, and I've got to help a lot of people since they know that I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, and they always ask me, what made you an alcoholic? Was it the time when your mom yelled at you? Was it the time when you broke your back in football? And I just get to sit there and smile. And if you ever try to explain it, it's impossible, so don't even try, I promise. Um, but just smile and wave. <laughs> That's all I do. And uh, I lost my train of thought. But anyway, so first thing that kind of really threw me for a loop was my grandma, who I was so close with, you know, my entire life. She's like a second mom to me. I loved her more than my mom, you know, because my grandma never said a mean thing to me. Uh, she got dementia. For a while, she had kind of started falling over. She was forgetting things. And we didn't really think anything of it. They lived here in Illinois, five hours away. So, you know, we saw them when we were here. Uh, my grandpa, you know, was just an old school working guy. Every morning he left at five in the morning. He got home at five at night. Dinner was on the table. They sat in their separate living rooms and watched their TV, and then they went to bed. So the interaction between him and my grandma was not enough to where it really stood out. Um, but she did officially get diagnosed with dementia. And it wasn't a big deal right away. Uh, but once they branded that problem, we all kind of started noticing things. You know, she was falling over more. Um, she couldn't talk as well. She's, she was choking all the time. We always had to be ready to help her when she ate just because she would have died. You know, she just couldn't chew her food. And I remember thinking, this is the nicest person that I've ever met in my entire life. This lady's done nothing but love me. I've never seen her say a mean thing to a single soul besides my grandpa when I didn't get what I wanted. And, you know, and this awful thing's happening to her. And I grew up in Catholic schools, so I've been taught about a God who's loving and cares about everybody. Uh, and I know a whole bunch of people that I'm not too fond of, and they were just fine. And I didn't understand why my grandma was the person who had to struggle. Um, so it was very confusing for me. It didn't necessarily get me into hard drinking yet, but it made me start questioning God and the God that I grew up with. And that slowly progresses. It's getting worse and worse. And so I'm having this feeling where I feel like I'm watching her die slowly. You know, she's there, but the person that she is to me is slowly slipping away. And as an alcoholic who already feels out of place and doesn't know how to live life, that's a big life situation for a 15-year-old who doesn't even have the tools he needs at the time. And so my only reaction was to drink, was to get away from it, was to get ease and comfort, because I knew if I was sitting next to her, if I was talking to her, that I wasn't going to feel happy, I wasn't going to feel good, I wasn't going to be of any use to her, because my pain was what was most important. And so I, of all the times that I needed to be around for my family and I needed to be by her side, I was out drinking, I was other places, um, you know, treating the problem. And, uh, and so I went through that, and it got worse and worse. And that, of course making me drink a lot more was starting to cause problems at home. My drinking was starting to be noticed. But at that point, you know, everyone just thought it was the normal high school thing. If he's going to drink, he's going to drink a couple times, he'll get sick, he'll be safe, you know. And then when he gets to college, he can do whatever he wants. And uh, so I keep going. And then I end up actually getting a brain virus my sophomore year uh, called encephalitis. Um, and I was basically, I was dying in this hospital at 16 years old. And nobody could tell me why. They would taken me to an ER uh, and did a spinal tap, but when they did it, they missed. And they tore a muscle and it struck my back. And there was so much, a hu obviously a huge deal out of that, which I still think we should have got a couple grand out of that deal. Um, <laughs> missed opportunities. But uh, even at a 16-year-old alcohol, I could still see there was money to be made in that situation. But, uh, you know, there was so much confusion and big deal about that that they completely missed the results. So as far as they knew, they chalked down negative, 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 didn't find anything. Uh, and I was in a hospital in Springfield for about a month, um, you know, just hooked up to a fentanyl pump, hooked up with, you know, oxygen on my face, random people coming in seeing me, you know, just huge crowds of people. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, people are just going to come see you when you break your arm. Like, I must be dying because all these people are coming to see me. And that's ultimately what the doctor said. You know, they're like, you're wasting away. You know, you're not doing anything, and we don't know why, but we're trying to figure it out. And, uh, and I got shipped up to Children's Hospital in St. Louis for about another uh, month and a half, two months. And uh, they decided that I was making it up, you know, that I was just trying to get attention. 
um, which I'm not saying I wasn't milking that thing for everything it's worth <laughs> that my brain capability allowed me to, um, but there was definitely something wrong. And, and when they when they told us that and they weren't helping us anymore, I went back home and was basically on bed rest for another month, and I just got lucky. I mean, I just beat it. You know, there's a lot of people who don't make it through that. And even because of that, you'd think I'd get grateful or I'd realize that maybe there is a God. Um, but, of course, as an alcoholic, all I notice is why I'm different. You know, all I notice is that there's about 300 other people my age back at high school who are not having these problems. And for some reason, I'm the only one who has to do it. Um, and so I was just filled with anger. I mean, I just remember it coursing through my mains, thinking, I'm going to do whatever I want. You know, I could die at any time. So why the hell would I do anything else that anybody wants me to do? Because it's my life. You know, I just had that realization that, you know, I'm the only one who's going to control what happens. And I want this to go my way since it doesn't look like it's going to last very long. And when I got out of that, um, I ended up having to get a, a back surgery because I had to relearn how to walk after the, uh, after the brain virus and was lifting these weights and I'd ruptured a disc in my back that somehow they didn't find in the three months of vigorous testing on my entire body. And uh, so I had to go in and have a back surgery, which just kind of took sports out for a while. And, you know, and I look back now and I'm like, man, that was awful. Oh, I really missed that. But at the time, honestly, all it did was give me more time to drink. I remember having like that initial, like, oh, that sucks. But when my brain clicked and realized that that meant I had all the time in the world to party and to drink and to feel better, I mean, it was the biggest blessing I ever got through high school. You know, I think a lot of times we talk about alcohol as the boogeyman in the closet that's going to get us, but alcohol saved my life. You know, if I wouldn't have had alcohol throughout that time, I wouldn't be standing here right now because I do not have the tools to live sober. And so without a solution, I'm just going to kill myself. That's my only option if I don't want to be miserable in my head every day, all day long. You know, so I'm grateful for the time that I did have that and that I was able to find something until I got to AA. Um, and that's all it did. So I remember maybe a day or so of being upset. But, I mean, bottom line was I just loved the fact that I could drink whenever I wanted to. Um, and it was less responsibility. You can't be drunk at practice, apparently. You can't be drunk on the field. They've got all these stupid rules around how you got to handle yourself. So, I mean, I was just good to go. Um, I watched, and I remember watching the people slowly slip away from me, which I didn't understand because I was thinking, these are my friends. You know, they know how miserable I am. I talk about it. It's pretty easy to see. Um, you think they'd be happy for me that I have something that makes me feel better, something that fixes this problem I have that they can't understand. Um, so I just thought they were selfish. You know, I thought they didn't care about me. And I said, fine, you can leave. You know, there's plenty of people doing what I'm doing, and they get me. Um, so I didn't bat an eye at the people who started walking out of my life, even though if they'd been there for 10, 13 years. You know, it didn't matter because I already had a new friend that took care of me. Um, after, after I had that happen, um, my grandma got really, really, really bad. Um, she couldn't walk anymore. She couldn't talk. She couldn't really eat, so we knew it was just a matter of maybe a year uh, two years or so before she just wasn't going to be with us anymore. Um, and when, I remember when they sat me down and basically told me that, it just it just destroyed me. I mean, I just I'd lost basically all faith, any last hope I had in life. Uh, when they finally told me that my grandma was just on her last stretch, that she wasn't going to make it much longer. Um, you know, with sports being gone, with the things at home that were driving me crazy, with my own insanity that I was dealing with, and then with her going. You know, there just didn't really seem to be a point anymore. I didn't see a purpose. What are grades going to do? What's school going to do? I've almost died. You know, my family's falling apart. I don't see how algebra and biology are going to make my life any better. Um, so I just kind of gave up and just figured I'd do what I wanted and just try to do damage control. That's probably the best way I can describe it. I wanted to do damage control on my life so that it just didn't have to be as miserable as possible. Um, so at home, it's becoming such an issue of my drinking um, that my parents, you know, unknowingly are basically detoxing me in my house. They pull me out of school for a month and make me sit in the living room. Um, can't go to the bathroom by myself, any of that kind of stuff. And it's amazing. I, I could have swore that they'd never been to Al-Anon, but apparently they read a book somewhere about what to do with me. <laughs> and uh, so I've sat there for a month, um, and I tell this story because I remember after about three weeks of not drinking, you know, life seemed okay. You know, I was closer with my family. Uh, we seemed to get along better. I wasn't stressed. I wasn't worried all the time. Um, of course, I still have that roar in my head, but I think, you know, we get lucky every once in a while. We're so miserable for so long that a couple things go our way, and we can make it, you know, for a certain amount of time. And I did that, but I remember at the end of week three, the thought started creeping into my head, seven more days, six more days, 
five more days, four more days, on and on, until I got to drink again. Uh, and I saw a therapist, too, and I said, they told me I can't drink ever again, which is a pretty good sign when that's what you're worried about, there might be a problem. Um, but thank God, that man, he goes, oh, well, we don't know about that yet. And I'm like, yes. It's <laughs> 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 like, we about had a problem there for a minute. And uh, so I decided I was an alcoholic when it came to hard liquor. But beer can't be that bad. You know, I'm in high school. We're supposed to drink beer, but it's that hard liquor. That's the stuff that causes problems. So I'm telling all my friends I'm an alcoholic. I can't drink hard liquor, but I'll drink a beer with them and it'll be fine. You know, these so-called friends, I don't know who they were, but they definitely weren't actually around because no matter what I drink, I scared people away. Um, you know, and with those people disappearing, I started really gripping a hold of the violence, the mask and fear with violence, you know, how I felt inside by hurting other people. Um, whether it was because they made me angry, whether it was because they were in the wrong place at the right time, whether it's because the people I started associating with were telling me I had to, um, you know, it took me to a really dark spot. You know, I, I remember that I was so desperate to fit in, uh, so desperate to find anything to help get that noise out of my head, that feeling of inadequacy, that anybody who gave me five seconds of their time, I mean, you had me won over. If you let me stay around in a room and you didn't walk away or run me off, I mean, we were best friends. I'll do anything for you. You know, and when you get into the kind of lifestyles that we do and do the things, you know, around the people who do it too, you don't usually end up in a very good place. You know, so I was getting money for people. Um, I was selling stuff for people. I mean, it was just a bad deal. Um, and my whole family's just kind of watching this, you know, and we like to think that we're sneaky and that we're hiding these kind of things, but they're watching their son slowly slip away. Uh, and I'm starting to not care about my family anymore. You know, such a huge focus of my life is now just an inconvenience to the point where I actively basically started sabotaging my parents' marriage. You know, when Ma got in trouble, I figured, you know what, no one ever really tells Mom what she does wrong. And I'm like, I'm already in trouble, so this seems like a pretty good time to tell Mom what she does wrong because it can't get any worse. Which is not true, if you haven't heard about this. So, I don't necessarily think it's a mom thing. It might just be a female thing. But <laughs> I don't win, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. So I start just unloading and telling her all these things, what she's got wrong and what she's doing, and then telling my dad, and here's what you're not doing and why you're a bad dad. Um, you know, And, of course, it ends up in tears and screaming and fighting, which to me is just a goldmine of reasons to go drink and work on my problem. So I'm like, sure. Fly open the door, I'm heading out to my car, uh, and my dad, bless his heart, I mean, I love him to death, he's my hero today, um, and he knew, I mean, he wasn't stupid, he was never crazy like I was, but he knew what I was doing, uh, and he ran after me and asked me if I go to the movie store with him, and I'm going 30 minutes without drinking, that probably won't be too bad, and uh, so we get in the car and we drive there, and, uh, and he goes, well, what would you say if I told you I was going to leave your mom? And the first thing I thought was sadness. You know, I'm living a self-centered lifestyle, you know, the, you know, an animal backed into a corner. But I still have, you know, that deep down, you know, primal love for my family, you know, that nothing was really able to completely kill. So I felt that for a second. But then I remember the light kicking on again. And I'm thinking, man, is it going to be easy to drink and do what I want? Both these people are going to fight for my attention. Both these people are going to want me to, want me to see them as their favorite. Both of these people aren't going to be able to watch me as well. Um, and I remember just that sense of okayness coming over me. You know, like I'm good for the rest of my life. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to have what I need to be okay. Um, and it's at the expense of my parents' marriage, you know, that have been married for 20 years. And thank God they didn't actually separate. Um, but, of course, at the time, I'm seeing this as a logical deal. Yeah, my mom's awful. She's a terrible person. You know, it's not like she provides for me and gives me anything I want and cooks me food and puts a roof over my head. You know, it's just an awful person, and this is what my dad should do. But looking back, it just, it just amazes me, you know, the levels of selfishness that alcoholism will take us to. You know, the blinders it puts on to where all I can see is what I need to feel okay. Um, and now, shortly after that time, the scariest thing started to happen where it just wasn't working as well anymore. You know, no matter what I drank or what I did, that pain just kind of seemed to linger more and more. You know, and the best way I could describe it was, you know, in high school, I'm looking at this social pyramid. You know, you've got the jocks and you've got the drinkers and you've got the people who do everything. And I'm slowly making my way up this pyramid because I think once I get to the top, that's when I'll fit in and that's when I'll be happy. But what I didn't realize was that when I hit the top of that pyramid, it goes back down. And it takes half the time to get back to the bottom than it did to get to the top. And within a month, you know, I'm, I'm at the very bottom. I've got no friends. My family doesn't know who I am anymore. 
All I do is hurt people. They're afraid to be in a room with me or be around me. Um, and I'm just drinking by myself all the time. You know, the world just seemed an unfit place for Corbin. You know, there just didn't seem to be a reason. And, uh, and I remember it was about around my 18th birthday um, that I was sitting in my car uh, drinking by myself, and I just thought, you know what, I guess this is what life's going to be until it kills me. You know, I remember making the mental decision that I know the stuff I'm going to do is going to kill me eventually, and at least I'm going to go out minimizing the pain as much as possible. You know, there, there was no reason to be around anymore. Um, and I remember, too, you know, just another sign of alcoholism I realized once I got sober was before school I used to go across the street to this church parking lot um, and drink beer in the morning, you know, to keep the shakes from happening. You know, having no idea that the shakes had anything to do with the alcohol. I didn't know what alcoholism was, what AA was, anything until I got to treatment. Um, so I just thought it was another thing that the alcohol did for me. You know, I was like, wow, apparently people sometimes just shake in the morning because they hate their life, but alcohol fixes that problem. Um, and it did, absolutely. They didn't always stay down, you know, but eventually if you brought enough, you could sit still for maybe an hour or so. Um, and I had to do that, you know, and I didn't think a thing of it. I just thought, man, I've got it good with this alcohol stuff. Um, but it all, of course, boils down. I start having night after night after night where I'm just not getting relief anymore. You know, I'm going through handles, gallons, you know, of alcohol and nights, you know, waiting to die or for the pain to go away, and neither would happen. You know, I remember the most uncomfortable feeling was probably drinking myself sober, which, you know, only the people like the, you know, only the people in here have a chance in understanding what it's like to drink yourself sober. You know, you can't walk a straight line, you can't really talk very well, but you feel like you just woke out of bed in the morning, brushed your teeth, and ready to start the day. I mean, your mind is just going. Um, and I just, I just, I can't. I can't put into words the fear and the hopelessness that that put into me when I drank everything I could get my hands on and realized that nothing had changed. Besides that, I was even more ill-equipped to live life because I couldn't walk and I couldn't talk. Um, but of course, that doesn't stop me, you know. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to understand. But if you put, if you poison me, and you drop 43 pills in front of me and tell me you have 60 seconds, one of these pills is going to cure you. After 13, I'm not going to stop just because they haven't worked yet. You know, I'm going to take every last one of those things that I can find because as far as I know, that's the only thing that's going to save me. And that's exactly what alcohol was. It doesn't matter how many times it doesn't work because it worked before. You know it's the solution, so you're going to keep doing it until you kicks in because what else are you going to do? You're just going to be miserable. You know, I still had that faint sense of hope that it would do for me what I needed. And alcohol did for me, you know, the, probably the best thing I ever needed, which was to get me here. You know, and that all started six days after my 18th birthday. Um, I remember going up to the stomping ground that I used to do everything at, um, and there was one guy left, you know, in Missouri <laughs> that didn't, you know, didn't hate me and was willing to be around me enough because um, I hadn't seen him in like six months. <laughs> and uh, he showed up, and I'm sitting in my car, and he's like, "Hey, man, come take some shots with me." Uh, and I was like, "No, I've got pl I got a lot of stuff in my system right now. That's definitely not a good idea because we know how this is going to end up." And he's like, well, just take a shot. It won't be a big deal. I'm just waiting for some friends to get here anyway. And I'm like, well, this is the one man in the world who's willing to be around me, and he's offering me free alcohol. So I was like, all right, well, I'll take one shot. And I hobble over to this park bench, and I sit down, uh, and he pours this shot, and he slides it towards me. Uh, and I remember looking at it, and I took it, and I put the shot glass down, um, and he grabbed it, and he started filling it up again. You know, and this is when I realized I was an alcoholic because when I got here, I wasn't absolutely convinced. But when I thought about my last drunk, this is the single thought that kind of basically won me over, was he poured that shot, he slid it to me, and I remember watching my hand go down for the glass with every thought in the world, with all the self-knowledge I could muster, telling me exactly what was going to happen exactly who was going to get hurt, exactly the stupid things I was going to do, and the pain it was going to cause the next day as well. I mean, I already know exactly what's going to happen. I do it every night. And I picked up the shot glass, and I'm watching it come to my face. I'm watching it go down my throat. And then, of course, I'm in another blackout. You know, I was a blackout drinker as well. Um, and that was probably the worst. You know, the rest of what followed um, was all told to me besides the very last thing I remember of the night once I actually got home, which I heard a speaker in Branton last year put it perfectly, like sometimes God just kicks it on, you know, just enough so that I can see what's happening. And uh, I drank in that, and then I'd just gone instantly into a blackout. I had a lot of stuff in my system. I mean, I'm surprised that I'm still alive. 
And, uh, and I instantly just started losing consciousness every couple seconds. So I'd stand up and I'd hit the ground. I'd stand up and I'd hit the ground and I'd punch somebody and I'd hit the ground and they'd beat me up and I'd hit the ground. And I'd just put my body through just hell. And everybody just laughed and watched because no one had ever seen somebody that was so messed up before. And I'm not these people's friends anymore. You know, I destroyed every last relationship I had, so they're probably getting some pretty good satisfaction out of it, and I don't blame them. Um, but it was all fun and games for them, but I finally crawled my way to my car. And I got inside of it, and I started driving off in Springfield. And I was driving people off the road. I started going through people's yards. I was going in the opposite side of traffic, down all of the major streets in Springfield, Missouri. And thank God that those people who weren't my friends still cared enough about me that they chased me down. I mean, they jumped in their cars and they bolted after me and they finally pinned me at a stoplight. And they knocked me out, threw me in my passenger seat, and they left me in my parents' driveway in a puddle of my own vomit, my own urine, and my own blood. Uh, and that's what my parents got to come out and find me in. And I remember, that, well, I shouldn't say I remember, but they told me it took them like an hour just to get me in the house. Um, they had to drag me through. My little brother, um, who's five years younger than me, was sitting on the couch watching me. Um, they got me up to my bedroom. They're just crying. I mean, I've had it, my whole left side of my body is just dead, not working. My face is sagging down. Um, I mean, they they don't even know if it's you know if they can call anybody. They just figured I might have been dead. And I relate to the part in the book um, where it talks about the man beating on the bar. You know, frustrated and angry, wondering how he got to this place. Um, and I was just screaming and kicking and, and punching the mattress as they laid me down on it. Because my, these are my parents. They're crying. They're going, what did we do? What is wrong with you? Why can't you stop? What's the deal? What, what can we do? How can we fix this? You know, and it's not like I don't want it to go away. You know, I want the pain that I feel to go away more. But, you know, I also would like to be a decent person. You know, I never lost that desire to fit into society. Um, it was just pushed to the back of my priority list. Uh, and so they're assaulting me with, with these questions, and I'm just sitting here going, I don't know. You know, I don't know what to tell you. And I reached up and I grabbed my dad by the neck and I begged him to kill me because I didn't know what else to do. I said, I, absolutely. I don't want to do this anymore either. There's one solution left. I've tried everything else. Um, and then I passed out, woke up the next morning in a case, and of course I don't remember anything. Um, and my dad comes in there, and he goes, uh, and I just yell at him, you know, because that's what I did to my loving parents when they woke me up to take me to school. Um, and he just looks at me, and I remember, like, he doesn't usually look this hurt. Plus, I don't remember that he's cried, which was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. Um, and he just starts bawling again, and he goes, you don't even remember, do you? You know, and then he told me everything that had happened the night before. And, uh, and I went to school. Uh, came home and they had said that we think we should go someplace. Um, they found a treatment center in Florida. It was the first phone uh, number in the phone book that they called. And uh, so I went down there. I remember my mom asked me if I wanted to go. And I think I was just still so messed up enough that rehab sounded like a good idea. Because <laughs> there's still not a lot going on up here. And I'm like, sure, vacation, that's probably what I need. I can go someplace else. I mean, Florida, how bad could it be? The website, of course, says pools and beach and da-da-da. And you show up in the pools like this fish pond, and the beach is like 30 miles that way. <laughs> and I was just like, these guys are sneaky. I was like, 14,000 big books aren't really worth the $14,000. But uh, I get down there, and like any good alcoholic, I had to do a little bit more before I went down, which apparently was good because they told us we needed to get drunk to get sober. <laughs> <laughs> your insurance isn't going to pay for it if they don't believe that you're a real alcoholic. So I was like, deal. And uh, showed up, you know, with like pupils the size of headlights. Now, when's the last time you did anything? I haven't done anything for a week. I'm totally fine right now. So nice to you. Oh, my God, I'm so great to be you. <laughs> and they're just like, all right. <laughs> just packing my stuff, looking through everything, you know, making sure I didn't sneak anything in. Um, you know, and I'm out of it for like the first three days. I don't know I'm in rehab, like. I've got so much crap in my system that's slowly starting to come out that just I don't, I don't know what's going on. But officially about three days in, the light started to kick back on. I realized I'm in a place where I can't drink, where I'm away from my solution. I start to freak out a little bit. Um, and man, have I ever, I've never heard the roar louder in my head than when I was sitting there three days sober in rehab. Um, and I remember sitting on this bench. And I've never been, I was very lucky. I never went to jail. I never had any legal complications because of my drinking. But uh, this giant, I mean, to this day, the biggest black man I've ever seen, he's kind of standing, looking around, and then he sees me. 
and he starts beelining towards me. And I've never been in any type of correctional program, rehab, prison, jail, but I've heard a lot of stories, and I wasn't too excited about what might be following this interaction I was about to have. And he's got like this giant scar across his eye. You know, they'd like cut it in a bar fight, so he only had one good eye. I mean, it's the scariest possible man I could ever imagine to come running at me. And I'm just sitting here like, mm. <laughs> And that man picks me up, hugs me, and says, You may have forgotten about God, but God hasn't forgotten about you. Now, I'm sure that's probably what you thought he was going to do, because that's what I thought he was going to do. Um, but he sat me down, and after I shook off like the 15 minutes of just baffledness, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's not like I just hit my knees and was like, oh, thank God, I'm glad I found you again, everything's going to be great now. Um, but it planted the seed, you know, the seed that maybe, maybe there's hope still. Um, and everything to treatment, the step packets, you know, the, the fake AA meetings, I like to call them. We'd have three guys come in every week and tell the same stories about watching people drink on a plane. And, ah, ha, ha, they stir too much. They don't drink it fast enough. I'm like, that's great. Like, I don't see what this really has to do with me. Um, and they tell us what a sponsor was, you know, and what the steps were. But we never actually had a meeting. And, uh, and so really what I got mostly out of that treatment center was for the first time I felt safe in my entire life. And the only reason I went, um, besides it just sounding like a good idea at the time, um, was I talked to this lady on the phone whose job was to get her plane ticket. Her job was to you know, make sure you had a credit card, make sure you got your stuff ready so that you could fly down there. And she was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was on the phone for her for like a couple of hours. You know, and she was telling me how I thought, how I acted, how I felt, what I was going to do if I didn't go, what I was already planning on doing once I got done, uh, and the various reasons why I shouldn't or shouldn't go. And for the first time, someone understood me at the molecular level. And that was able to give me a little bit of hope that maybe there's a chance that I can get fixed. Maybe there's a chance that things can get better. And I went down there, and that's exactly what I found. I was the youngest person in the treatment center. I was 18 years old. Um, everybody else was usually in their 30s, 40s, if not 50s. And not a single person looked down on me because of my age, just like you all. Um, they all saw me as a sick alcoholic who needed help and didn't know how to live life. And I developed friendships, and I developed bonds, and that sense of camaraderie, um, which is just something I'd never known before. It's not the same as sports. It's not the same as family. It's like on this higher plane of just being 100% purely unconditional. You know, and people would relapse and we'd be sad. You know, and people would get to leave and have families waiting for them at home and we'd get excited. Um, they even elected me president, which I still think is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> for like two weeks, I got to be the youngest president in FCR history and uh, Florida Center for Recovery. And uh, I called my parents and I'm like, Mom, Dad, they made me president for the next two weeks. And like, I'm waiting for like the claps and applause because, you know, every parent's dream is to hear that their son got to be king of the alcoholics for like two weeks. <laughs> But they just didn't understand what a big deal it was, but I forgave them for that later. Um, and so I remember we're finally get, about halfway through it, I, to I toned down a little bit, you know, because in most treatment centers that are a month long, they start over after two weeks because you got new people come in. Um, so they don't just take you through one program, like they give you about two weeks worth of stuff and then they start it over again. And I'm, as a good alcoholic, I'm thinking, well, I've got this knowledge now. I mean, I've learned everything that you told me you planned on teaching, so I've got school back home that I'd still like to finish, so I'm going to need you to get me back on a plane. And the rehab lady just laughed. <laughs> I remember she sat across from me, she just goes, <laughs> no. And I was like, oh, all right, play this game. So I called my mom, and I'm like, Mom, you don't get it. These nurses, they're abusing us. They won't even give some of these people medication. There's mold in all the vents. There's got to be people dying from this stuff somewhere. The counselor has no idea what he's talking about. I think they drink. I'm not sure. But she's like, oh, my God. A week later, my parents are there. They come down to see me. Uh, they flew, uh, they flew uh, my brother with them. They all came to the treatment center to see me for a family weekend. Um, and my mom, she said, i got a plane ticket for you if you want to leave. And so I'm excited. I got the, what I wanted. You know, I had my way out. And for the first time in my life, for some reason, I treated my dad with a sense of respect that I actually felt for him. And I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, what do you think I should do? And he said, Corbin, you seem different. You seem better. And I haven't seen you finish anything in a long time. And I think this would be a good place to start. And I started bawling. He started bawling. And I had to ask him to leave because I, I took it. I was like, absolutely, yes, sir. I'm going to stay. But the more I looked at him, the more and I talked to him, the more I wanted to leave. You know, and then I felt awful because I was asking him to leave. And they flew all the way down from Springfield, Missouri to Florida to come see me. 
Um, but that's what I did. I knew that if I stayed there and kept talking to them, there was no way I was going to be able to stay. And they did, and they respected that. And they hugged me, and they left, and I cried for like a day. felt awful. Uh, but I stuck it out. Uh, and I got to talk to a couple people. My, my counselor was a really good guy. He was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so he kind of gave me an entry dose of the real deal. Um, and then I got released a couple days early, flew home. Of course, the first thing I did was get a meal. Um, you know, I'll tell every newcomer I meet in a treatment center, first thing you need to do <laughs> is go to a meeting. But I always feel a little bit bad because that's absolutely not what I did. First thing I did was con my dad and take me to get a meal at Applebee's. And, uh, <laughs> We drove home, and again, I swear that they'd never been to Al-Anon, but they had a meeting schedule ready for me. Um, they'd already researched a couple of places where the meetings would be, wanted to make sure I felt comfortable, offered to go with me. God bless them. And uh, put gas in the car, you know, all the good stuff that's required to be sober. <laughs> and uh, drove myself to a little Wednesday night group in Springfield, Missouri. And this, this is amazing. So I don't know that we're a basement people yet, that like we hide underground, that like we're just comfortable there. So as any normal, or not normal person by definition, but as a normal thinker, <laughs> I decide, oh, I'm just going to walk into this church because this is where it's at. And there's a group of people in a circle, and they're all holding the book, and I'm like, it's got to be where I'm going. I don't realize it's like black and not blue. <laughs> so I sit down in these circle of people, and they're reading these Bible verses, and they're talking about God. And I'm like, well, this kind of matches up a little bit with what people are telling me. And they're like, does anybody have any questions? And I'm like, hi. I'm like, I'm Corbin. Am I in the right place? They're like, you're in the right place. We love you. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I was like, this is awesome. And I was just like, well, I am an alcoholic. And they're like, what? <laughs> and like, so I'm an alcoholic. And they're like, downstairs. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So any courage or self-esteem that I've somehow managed to collect within a couple of days it took me to get to a meeting, gone. <laughs> so I walk in and I sit at the back of the room at this table all by myself. Only reason I probably stayed was thank God for smokers meetings because they had a smokers meeting outside. And I was like, deal, I'll go outside and smoke. Shared my infinite wisdom on the first step with those old timers. Because um, they didn't understand that I worked this packet three times in treatment. <laughs> I knew everything there was to know about the first step. And so I'm smoking, and thank God there was one person in that entire group who took the time out of their night to come shake my hand, tell me they were happy I was there, and to keep coming back. And I think it's something that we sorely underestimate. Because as someone with absolutely no self-worth, no friends in the world, that made the biggest difference in my life, was that somebody shook my hand and was happy to see me for the first time in years. And that man had 31 years sober. And there's a reason for that, because when you're the only guy at the group that shakes the newcomer's hand and tells them that you're happy you're there and you want them to keep coming back, it's a big part of getting to 31 years sober, in my opinion. And I'm grateful for that man every day. You know, some these days, you know, now that I've got some sobriety, you know, I tend to be a big deal sometimes. Um, I forget that, you know, and I, and I forget the little things like that that happen for me. Um, you know, but when I when I really go back down to the basics, I remember that you know that man was a big part of saving my life. The fact that he took two minutes out of his day to talk to me, uh, and he referred me to a group the next night. He said, "There's some younger people here because I'm 18, so I've got the usual like, well, I'm different, and all these people are old. So what are they going to tell me? Um, <laughs> you know, it's not like you guys knew what you were doing or anything." And uh, so I go over to the Southeast group, which meets on Thursday nights in Springfield, and everybody hugged me and everybody shook my hand and they were happy I was there and I made it my home group. Um, and I was very blessed early on in AA to have great examples, you know, because first of all, I was, I was kind of nervous about once I heard people share uh, as far as my bottom, you know, as far as how much pain I'd went through, you know, and the time and the experience that I have been able to get in AA has definitely taught me that the low bottom drunk is the one who's six feet under. You know, in my opinion, anybody who's still breathing had a high bottom. You know, because I've, I haven't been here long. Four years sober is not a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've seen plenty of people die. And I've seen plenty of people's families grieve and everything just get awful. And that's a low bottom to me. You know, so if you're new or if you're nervous, if you haven't been to jail, please don't let that affect you. You know, everyone's a high bottom drunk who's still breathing today and suffers from the disease that I do. Um, so please do not feel unwelcomed. Um, but that was a big deal. That was playing on my mind. Um, but I was just surrounded by good examples in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the three people who saved my life didn't have 20 years, well, one of them did, 31 years sober guy who shook my hand. But the three people that I actually surrounded myself with starting off in Alcoholics Anonymous didn't have multiple years sober. 
It was a guy who barely had a year, two guys who had under a year. Um, and they came to my home group, and one of them was sitting right there tonight, Danny. Um, and they showed up to my home group, and at that group, there was a circle up on the stage where you actually shared, and then there was chairs in the back. To where you, that's just where you sat if you didn't get a chair in the circle. So, of course, I'm not in the circle. I'm in, like, the middle of the chairs in the back. Make the mistake of hiding in the back, but you actually stick out in the back as well, so the middle is where you actually want to be, because then it's just too much effort to get to you. So just write that down. You got that, Justin? You got it, Justin? Just write, write that down. And... Uh, so uh, they walk in the room, you know, and Danny tells me I tell this story wrong, but bottom line is, is they basically made sure that every exit was covered so that I did not get out of that meeting without them having a chance to introduce themselves to me and to tell them I was happy I was there, or I was happy I was there, that's not true, <laughs> to tell me they were happy I was there and that they wanted me to hang out and they wanted to get to know me. Um, and, and it absolutely saved my life because all three of them worked the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they all had amazing sponsors. You know, old timers who were deep seated in the program, who went nothing but out of the big book. Um, and so right away, I was just walked down a road, you know, to recovery. Um, it just, it just blows my mind the things that they did for me. Um, you know, they taught me to, to give people rides to meetings. You know, they taught me to pour coffee. You know, they showed me what to do with the hope that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, because we always talk about hope, you know, and that's what I felt when I saw the people laughing. You know, and for me, the people who showed me what to do with the hope was almost more important than the hope I got. Because if you cage an animal long enough and you open that cage door, they don't run out. You know, that's the reality. They're used to it. They don't see any point of leaving where they're at. And that's how I am in Alcoholics Anonymous when I first get here. I can see the hope. I know that there's a chance. But I've been doing what I've been doing for so long that I don't know what to do next. That's why I need a sponsor. That's why I need a good home group. That's why I need people who are firmly planted in AA. And they showed me what to do with the hope. They showed me where to go. They showed me what to do. I picked people up and I took them to meetings. I poured coffee at my home group. I got involved with service. I started calling my sponsor. I called other people in the program. All of these itty-bitty basic things that seemed like moving a mountain in early sobriety. But, I mean, those simple basic things were all it took for me to start developing some self-worth. You know, they told me if you want to feel worthwhile, you have to take worthwhile acts. You know, they taught me that this was an action program. You know, and the, Danny actually gave me one of the best pieces of advice. You know, we're not supposed to judge people, <laughs> but stick with the winners. Okay? <laughs> Don't judge them, but determine who the winners are spiritually and follow them. <laughs> and the best way that that was described to me was Danny said, Don't watch the lips, watch the feet. Watch the feet. Because even, you know, all of us can talk an amazing game. We're alcoholics, we're salespeople, that's what we do. And if you watch somebody's feet, those are the people that I chose to stick around, the people that I saw at home group business meetings, at districts, you know, on 12-step calls, at the podium, you know, the people that I actually saw participating in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Springfield, Missouri is packed with them, and I am so blessed to be there because all three of those people were doing that, and all I did was watch their feet. I traced their steps, you know, which led me to the other people who led with their feet, you know, and it was just... It's just amazing. I mean, I've had a smooth ride in Alcoholics Anonymous. Life has happened, absolutely. But as far as what I've actually had to do to gain what I have, it's very minimal. You know, it's the same basic things over and over on a daily basis. But I'll tell you that sobriety has presented some of the bigger challenges in my life. You know, I wish that the worst stuff had happened to me. You'd think, based off the couple things that did happen, that that would be worse. But, you know, even when I had, uh, I'm trying to think, I had to have spinal fusion surgery in sobriety. You know, and that was that was terrifying. You know, I was 20 years old, you know, and they're going to put metal rods in my back, and I was going to have to take medication to deal with that. And it absolutely just scared the death out of me. Um, and AA was there. AA made sure my pieces were together so that I could keep doing what I was doing, and I was talking about this last night. You know, it's not like we enable each other. We're just there to keep the pieces in order to where that person can still function. Because sometimes I'm so consumed with grief or pain, you know, that my brain just doesn't seem to be able to jump to that next logical step. It doesn't seem to be able to tell my feet to move forward, to carry me to the meeting, or to pick up the phone and to call somebody. But there's people around me who just hold those pieces tight enough together to where they're able to work. You know, and they did that for me through that. Um, you know, and I thought that was bad. Um, and I got through it, and it was a great growing experience. Um, and after that, 
um, it kind of opened my eyes to a couple things, and I kind of got more involved because in sobriety, I still slack off. There's still times where I don't do what I'm supposed to. I wish there was a permanent cure, but there's not in my experience. I still have the same self, I should say, I have the same ability to be selfish and self-centered um, and to just do what I want. But the beautiful thing is I have a choice today, every day when I wake up. You know, before when I put alcohol in my body, because of this craving, because of this obsession, I don't have a choice on what happens in my life anymore. But when I'm sober, every morning I get to wake up, and I know what I can start to do to take the right path, and I know that I can do what I want to take the wrong path. Uh, and then there's days where I choose the wrong one. There's days where I feel like doing what I'm going to do, and thank God so far those days haven't gotten me drunk. Um, but it's gotten close a couple times. Um, and after I'd had my back surgery, I kind of bounced back from that. Um, I think this was actually before that, but my grandma finally passed. Um, and this is where you people kicked in, Illinois AA. Um, I got the call that she was going on hospice and that she wasn't going to make it. Um, and I called my boss and I said, I'm going to have to take two weeks off of work. I'm going to be there for the last week of my grandma's life. And I'm going to be there to support my family the week after because I owe them a lot. Um, and that was probably, probably one of the best amends I ever had the ability to make on my own accord was to support my family through that hard time. And I got demoted, um, you know, and, and I was okay with it. I was resentful as hell afterwards. <laughs> I promise you that. But like in the spiritual moment of caring about my family, it was okay. Um, but I showed up, you know, and I sat next to my grandma. And I got to hold her hand. And I got to talk to her. And I got to make amends to her for the time that I wasn't there with her. And how much she meant to me. And I didn't have to sit there and talk about the horrible things that had happened, how much I hated my job, how I was being mistreated. I got to tell her about a beautiful life that was given me by Alcoholics Anonymous. And I talked to her about you people. And I talked to her about the things I got to do and the things I got to be a part of. And I got to read there, sit there and read uh, the St. Francis prayer to her, you know, which was the best vocalization of my grandma that I could ever think of. Um, and I got to watch tears start to go down her face. And I got to watch her smile, dying knowing that I was happy and that was okay. And then I'd recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And I walked out of that room and I saw my grandpa cry for the first time. And he said, that's the first time your grandma smiled in three weeks. And you did that. That's not me. I, by my own self, cannot accomplish things like that. It requires God and you people. You know, and to me, sometimes they're almost one and the same because He works through you and you brought me to Him. You know, I tried to find that. You know, being Catholic, I went through every, you know, every sacrament that they could give me. I would do anything if you told me that God would fix me and make me feel better, and none of it worked. You know, drinking the church wine after Mass probably didn't help anything, but I tried. You know, I had, you know, one through three, four, five, six, seven. I did all of them, and it didn't work. Um, you know, and I, and I got through that, and Springfield, Illinois AA was there. I called the central office. The guy showed up at my house. He picked me up and he took me to a meeting. I went to the meeting and I cried and I shared honestly and everybody hugged me and they brought food to my house and they showed up every night and brought me to meetings. You know, they allowed me to be of service. They had me cheer meetings. They helped me, they, they let me give people rides with them. You know, it was, it was not just people who were like, well, let's watch him. Let's, let's let him be of service. Let's give him the tools here so that he can still make it through this, which is beautiful. I don't even think about that a lot of times when I see somebody hurting. I don't think, how can I give them their own tools to use to get through this? And they did that, and it just blows my mind today. It was genius. Um, but for two weeks, they picked me up, and they carried me, and they loved me. It was the first time in Alcoholics Anonymous I got to have that experience of no matter where I am, AA is there, and they unconditionally love me and care about me. You know, that is the purest example I could ever give. So anytime I ever hear somebody in one of our meetings in Springfield say I'm visiting from Illinois, a huge smile and a huge spark in my heart kicks up, and I love to see you guys. Please come by Hillcrest at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights in Springfield, Missouri, if you're ever there. Um, and, and, I got, and that was a huge, huge growing experience. I got to support my family. I got to be there for my grandpa. I got to show up. You know, and by doing service work, uh, volunteering at my home group, at districts, at area, I learned how to suit up and show up so that when life happened, I could do the same thing, you know, because I can't just do this in AA, which is what I'm bad at sometimes. Sometimes I think all these principles and things that you teach me are for here, and I forget about my other, you know, when I'm out in the real world, when I'm not sitting next to you people. And that's all it does. You know, when I go out in society, I know how to suit up and show up now. 
And that's all I did. I put on my suit. I went to a funeral. I took it off. I held my mom. I held my grandpa. I held my aunt. And I was just of service. You know, and I honestly don't think there's any difference between being of service here and being of service out there. You know, because I'm all just trying my best to stay out of the way and do what I think my God would have me do. Um, You know, my mom, who I said was very similar to myself, um, she had a very, very dark week or so in her life. Um, She, I'm pretty convinced, (laughs) but can't diagnose, that we have a very similar illness. Um, Hers manifested in something different besides alcohol, um, but she was miserable. And when I got sober and you showed me my character defects and you taught me about the problems, you know, not that I was judging, (laughs) but I was like, wow, me and my mom are pretty similar here. I was like, this makes a little bit of sense, you know, which was good because for the first time I got to see her as a sick person, you know, like you taught me in the book, you know, that I saw these people as sick people. You know, would I be angry at somebody who had cancer? You know, no. Or would I be angry at somebody who had diabetes? Absolutely not. Um, And it finally went to a point um, where it exploded. My dad, you know, trusts me today, and he would talk to me about these concerns, talk to me about it, um, ask me what he should do, and I got to be there to support him. And I didn't have to tell him what to do, which is the amazing part, and thank God for a sponsor that reminded me of that. Um, But he told me, your job's not to tell him what to do. Your job's to share experience if he asks for it. You know, and and I used to fight, and I said, this is my dad, this is my brother, this is my mom, and he said... Bub, does your mom, your dad, and your brother have the ability to connect to a power greater than themselves that loves the hell out of them and can handle anything that life might give at them? And I was like, yeah. He goes, then you don't need to tell them what to do. Just be there. You know, and that's hard to do. That's a very hard thing for me because I love my family. But today, the best I can do is be there and trust that they have the same ability I do for a loving God who cares about them that can handle anything life throws at them. Um, and I can be there to be used or to watch. Um, and that's what I did. And it led to one night, and I'll never forget it because it was probably one of the bigger things that I had to deal with in sobriety, um, was I was exhausted all day at work. I felt miserable. Just one of those days where I waited all day to get home and just to go to bed. And I laid down, and I turned on the TV, getting ready to fall asleep. And like that, I was instantly awake. And I remember being instantly angry because it was the first time all day that I was awake and I just wanted to sleep. And in about five minutes, my phone rang. And it was my dad. And I hear screaming in the background, and my dad goes, Corbin, how long does it take somebody to detox? And I said, Dad, I don't know. It's, it's gonna be, it might be different from person to person. It depends on what's been going on. You know, and I got to call hospitals and call ERs. Um, I wish I could say spiritually. <laughs> but I was getting these nurses. I was like, my mom's crazy. <laughs> like, and she needs to go to a doctor, and I need to know if you'll keep her here if she doesn't want to stay. And they're like, well, we don't really... I was like, that's not good enough. (laughs) I was like, find somebody who does know. I know somebody there knows these tricks. I'm just like, there's got to be somebody who knows alcoholics in these places. They know she's not going to stay. There's got to be someone who can tell me what the sneaky process is to get them in there. And uh, so after like 45 minutes of interrogations that led to nothing, my dad finally just takes her to the ER um, and he had to trick her. I mean, because she's insane. She's thinking that, she's saying that, you know, our grandpa, you know, was date raping us, was drugging our drinks because she grabbed her cup and it was warm and she thought it was cold and we were being taken advantage of and just the dirtiest, nastiest things. And it was all reality to her. You know, I mean, she was coming off of a lot of stuff and she was in a completely alternate universe. So he tricked her into going to the hospital. He said, fine, let's go get tested. Let's make sure we're okay. Showed up, you know, and said, we're here to get her. And she's like, oh, he's the patient. My dad's like, sure, I'm the patient, <laughs> which probably isn't far from the truth because he needs a little bit of psychiatric help after dealing with both of us. Um, but we, they go back there, and I show up at this hospital at like 2 and 3 in the morning, and there's security guards and police officers outside, and they say, Mr. Beal, we need you to tell us what the truth is. And I don't know about you, but anybody with any type of authority with the law asking me what the truth is is an anomaly, if not a miracle. You know, and I don't feel great about this. You know, this is my mom. You know, there might have been resentment and hatred there for some portion of it, but that's my mom. And my primal instinct is to pick her up, carry her, and get her out of there. And that's what my mind's telling me to do. Um, but I tell them the truth. I tell them what's going on. She flips out. She just, it's just awful. Um, You know, she thought people were murdering us in front of her. I mean, just describe the nastiest things that I couldn't even have thought of. Um, You know, and I'm watching my dad. And my dad is in pieces. 
My dad's sitting there having no idea what to do with these things. He didn't have to deal with that with me. I mean, sure, I was drunk and I was sick and I, and I hurt myself and other people, but I was never, you know, literally almost insane in his eyes. Um, and when he finally told the doctor and the truth came out, he said, yeah, we're here for her because she's going crazy and we don't know what to do. She screamed and cussed him out and said a bunch of dirty things and made him leave the room. They had to tie her down to the bed. And my dad's just sitting in this room crying. He has no idea what to do. Um, and he leaned on me, and he cried, and we talked. And then the nurse came in, and she said, well, we're going to need you to sign her over if we're going to commit her. Um, and she said, is she a danger to herself or to others? You know, and my dad's like, well, I don't really know. And it was very hard for me because I was thinking of all the things that had happened um, to where obviously that was true, but I put myself in my dad's shoes, and I thought, man, it would be pretty hard for me to do this if this was my soulmate that I was having to talk about. And so I shared experience. He made his own decision. And they, and they committed her for about a week or so. And when they were rolling her out, she just started screaming. And I've never seen such fear and anger and frustration in somebody's eyes and in my mom's that night. And my dad just lost it. And my dad, he was walking next to her as they wheeled her out. And he turned around, and he just had the most awful look of pain and emptiness. And the best way I can describe it was my dad just showed his soul for a second. Just for a second, I got to see inside my dad, and I got to see pain and hurt and confusion just exploding. And he collapsed in my arms and cried on my shoulder, and I got to rub his head and tell him it was going to be okay, and that we were going to get through it, and that there was a God who was going to take care of all of us. And that my mom was very lucky because there's a program out there that will give her a life beyond her wildest dreams if she chooses to take it. And my dad stood up and he wiped the tears from his eyes and he told me how proud of me he was. And that's not what my dad used to do when he stood in front of me and looked me in the eyes. He used to hang his head down and he used to be sad and he used to wonder what he did wrong. You know, and now he trusts me enough as a man to let me hold him when he cries. And he asks me for my thoughts and my opinions on things. And every last one of these actions are only things that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. My brother that I never paid attention to growing up, that I love to death today, I started developing a relationship with him. One of his friends committed suicide. And he had no idea what to do. My brother's emotionally repressed. He kind of went through the same thing I did, but he's not one of us yet, thank God. Um, and he called me. He didn't call. He didn't want to talk to a counselor. He didn't want to talk to his girlfriend. He didn't want to talk to his parents. He called his big brother, the brother that was covered in blood, urine, and vomit because he didn't know what to do with life. And this week later, that brother's little brother killed himself. And my brother gave up on life. He didn't know what to do anymore. And he collapsed in my arms and cried. And I got to rub his head. And I got to tell him everything was going to be okay and that there was a God that was big enough and strong enough to take care of him. And every last one of the people's lives that I ripped through and destroyed, I have got to be a part of support today. My life has come full circle in only four years of sobriety. I've been able to work and help and support the people that I terrorized for years. And that's not something that I can pay Alcoholics Anonymous back for. I try. I try on a daily basis, but there is a debt that I will never be able to repay. You know, and the biggest way that I try and pay that debt is I try to be involved in service. You know, my home group is in District 14 of Area 39 in Western Missouri. You know, and that's very important to me. You know, the people that I was surrounded, like Danny and his sponsor and our home group, you know, they told me that I wasn't going to take anymore. That I needed to give, and that's all I do. You know, if you don't help me, I take. I will sit in a meeting, and I will listen to you, and I will do nothing else. My entire sobriety, if nobody was there to show me a different way. And that wasn't working for me. The moment I got to taste service, you know, nothing was ever the same. You know, it started with young people's events. You know, and if you haven't realized this yet, guys, we're the future. <laughs> it's scary, trust me. I'm not happy about it either. You know, but they're telling me that we're the future. So that means we better start our training early because someday some of these things are going to fall to us. You know, and at first I was so scared, you know, people are going to be angry at these young people. Why are they trying to be different? But the fact is, is I'm surrounded by old timers who are deeply involved in service and go, this is awesome. We get to work with these people. You know, we're showing them what to do. They gave us a committee at the Western area 
So at our area assembly, we were able to start a whammy paw committee, which is the Western Area of Missouri Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, because they know. They love us. They came to us saying, we don't want you to leave. We want you to make something. You know, I got to be involved with Ikipaw. I got to be on the host committee for the 54th Ikipaw last year. You know, we got involved with Smikipaw, you know, when it was still a bid committee trying to get it. There's just so many things that AA has given me that I never had before. You know, I was never on a committee. The only type of committee I ever dealt with was in my head. Or with people that we were trying to decide who had to go beat up who and steal what, you know, or who got to divide the, you know, the plunder. <laughs> I guess is the best way that I can put it. Um, but Alcoholics Anonymous will open doors that you just never thought were possible. You know, my experience is that all of our defects end up being our biggest assets. Um, and like it was described beautifully last night, you know, if I'm holding on to it, God can't grab it from me. I'm a firm believer and nothing happens, uh, nothing happens, you know, without a reason behind it, but it's also still, you know, dependent upon my choices and my actions. You know, if I pray for a hot dog hiding behind a closet, I don't think one's going to poke through the keyhole. Um, but luckily my God's strong enough to show me how <laughs> I can go get some food. You know, so I have to take action. I have to do something. You know, and I'm free today. One of the old timers in Springfield, one of his favorite things he told me was when he got sober, we got the ability to be free and the ability to dream back. Um, you know, so I don't have to worry. A lot of people seem to be surprised that I don't limit where I go, uh, especially, you know, at like say top or, or whip. It's all these, uh, you know, like drunk driving kind of weekend deals that we get the pleasure of speaking at. Um, they'll be like, you go around alcohol, you go to bars, places where people drink, you know, they're like, don't you recoil from, from a hot, like a hot flame, like the smart ones <laughs> that have read the book before. So like they quote the one line is like, what you said isn't right. I've read it. And I was like, well, we recoil from it for like a hot flame, you know, but because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have to completely avoid the kitchen. You know, I don't have to stay and limit where I get to go if I have a good reason for being there. You know, I don't fear alcohol anymore. I respect it. It doesn't run my life, you know, because if I'm constantly scared of alcohol, to me, it's like it has the same control over me that it did when I was drinking. If it's a part of every thought that I have on a daily basis, you know, it's still running my life in a certain facet. You know, and the program that I got to work with my sponsor and with my friends taught me to respect alcohol and to realize what it could do for me, but I didn't have to let it drive me crazy. And, you know, it was not the boogeyman in the closet. That's not what it did. And, again, I should be grateful that I found it because I'd be dead if I didn't. Um, but it has been an amazing journey. And according to my phone, it's about that time where I take over and God lets go. And that will be the point <laughs> where the thought goes south, if not already. But uh, I want to leave you um, with something out of the big book. It's one of my favorite passages, um, if not my most favorite, because I feel like it perfectly describes my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and I personally believe that every last one of us has the ability to get this, as long as we take a few simple actions, have a sponsor, work some steps, pour coffee, be involved. It's very simple. All you need is a phone, a big book, and a sponsor. That's literally most of the supplies that I've ever needed now, Alcoholics Anonymous, to get what I have today. Um, and I love all of you, and again, thank you so much for having me here. But it reads, from Keys to the Kingdom, The last 15 years of my life have been rich and meaningful. I've had my share of problems, heartaches, and disappointments, because that is life. But also I have known a great deal of joy and a peace that is a handmaiden of inner freedom. I have a wealth of friends, and with my AA friends, an unusual quality of fellowship. For to these people I am truly related. First through mutual pain and despair, and later through mutual objectives and newfound faith and hope. And as the years go by, working together, sharing our experiences with one another, and also sharing a mutual trust, understanding, and love without strings, without obligation, we acquire relationships that are unique and priceless. There is no more aloneness with that awful ache so deep in the heart of every alcoholic that nothing before could ever reach it. The ache is gone, and it never need return again. Jared AA, I'm reading something right now, don't call me. <laughs> now there is a sense of belonging, of being wanted and needed and loved. In return for a bottle and a hangover, we've been given the keys to the kingdom. Thank you very much.